0: Well, we are in the book of Ephesians right now, and um, Rebecca's going to come, and she's going to read our scripture passage for today, uh, which you'll find in chapter 3 of Ephesians. So if you would please stand, let's turn to chapter 3 of Ephesians, and we'll begin reading at verse 1, um, and read through verse 13. Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. Okay.
1: For this reason I So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory.
0: Lord, we thank you for the blessing of your word. We thank you, Lord, for using the Apostle Paul to write this letter. And, Lord, in writing that, uh, benefiting not only the Ephesian believers and those in that region who also read this, but, Lord, we who are a couple of thousand years out, Lord, who have the privilege of gathering together as your church and considering what you desire for us. And Lord, may you allow us today um, to be drawn into this passage, but Lord, to be drawn to this passage in the context of the rest of the book so that we can learn what it is that you want us to learn. Lord, that we can be conformed to the image of your Son, Lord, in a way that would be honoring and pleasing to you, and that you would just allow me to be your messenger. Lord, I would be faithful simply to, to be a mouthpiece for your text, Lord, that you would speak. And your people would hear. We ask this in your precious name, Amen. Um, thank you. You may be seated. One of the things that I think is a, is important for us to recognize here is that the Apostle Paul um, begins this letter by talking about all these incredible riches that we have in Christ Jesus. He talks. He begins by giving this this big picture plan. And then he, he moves on and prays for their enlightenment and then he talks about how the gospel came to them individually and then came to them as a corporate group. But one of the questions that must be asked and probably is a consideration for his recipients is, you know, who, who's given you the authority to say these things? Who's given you the authority and who's given you the wisdom to be able to understand what it is that you're saying? How do I know that what you're saying is true? And uh, you know, authority is a is a big responsibility. You know, know, usually you know, when you quote someone, you're you're trying to quote someone that you feel speaks authoritatively into the situation. So it's like, oh wow, okay. Well, if they said it, it must be true. And so, you know, the question here is this: you know, who is Paul to write this letter? Why why should the believers in Ephesus listen to him? They might even be thinking, who put you in charge? Now, this is a letter written to a church that he spent much time with, but he's been gone for a while, and he is presently in prison in Rome, our best understanding of of where he's at at that point in time, and if a church in Ephesus and that surrounding region is like any other churches, um, over time, things have changed. New people have come into the fold, and they're... They're coming, they're gathering as the church, and maybe in their houses, or maybe there's maybe a larger gathering where this letter is being read, and they might be asking the question, well, I've heard about Paul, but who is he really, and why why should I listen to what he has to say? And so we find here the Apostle Paul really segueing a little bit from what he has been arguing, and I just want to make that point, first of all, by by reading verse 1. For this reason, I Paul, and he says a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles, and then he he kind of goes he, he goes off in a direction to establish the stewardship that God has given him, and then if you notice, look at verse thirteen, uh, sorry verse verse fourteen, then he says, for this reason, I bow my knee before the Father. So he's he's actually beginning to write about the fact that he is going to be praying for them. But he segues in this text to talk about this stewardship that's been given to him. So this morning, I just want to begin to remind us um, who Paul is. And we begin by looking at chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Again, when he says that at the beginning of his letter, he's establishing his credentials as an apostle. Now, this next label is not necessarily given to him, but it's what he does. Not only as an apostle, but next we see him as an intercessor. He is praying on behalf of the Ephesian church that the eyes of their hearts would be opened to understand all these things that are being shared that he is saying in this letter. And then he goes on. And he talks about the gospel really in in, in two different ways, one more individual, one more corporate. And then we find now in chapter 3, verse 2, that he's identified as a steward. This is his role and function, a steward of God's glorious grace. And this is an expression that Paul has used frequently and will use frequently to talk about others who are fulfilling the responsibility and the role of being ministers of the word of God. Listen to a couple of verses of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And then Titus chapter 1, verse 7. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. And then again, we're talking there about an elder, a pastor in the church, is considered to be a steward. Okay? So the question now is, what is a steward? And a steward basically is someone who manages a household. That's how the word was used primarily. A steward um, represents or, or functions in that place of the master and for the master to manage that household And that steward takes the resources that are given to him by the master and he he gives them out and he uses them and he dispenses those resources within the household in an effective way. So the task of the steward is not to invent things. The task of the steward is simply to manage things on behalf of the master. So this is a stewardship of God's grace. This is what Paul has been doing throughout this letter so far. He's been taking what God has revealed to him and he has given it carefully and thoughtfully so as to give glory to God and confidence and joy to those who are part of God's church. So Paul here is a steward. Now, this is a stewardship of God's grace and as a steward, we've just noted the things that he's done. So again, briefly, let's just think through what he has done in this letter so far so that we can get to the context of where we are. He has given this big picture of God's plan of redemption. That was the first part. All right, that's chapter one, verses three through, what, 14. And then you have um, him praying that their eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. That would be the rest of chapter one. And then in chapter two, we have these these two almost parallel um, examples that are given to us. One that says, Hey, listen, as individuals, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. This was their condition, right? Totally under the influence of the world, under the influence of the devil, under the influence of their flesh. But God breaks in, right? Causes life to take place in them so that they're no longer dead. They're now alive and they're raised up to be seated with Christ. And he describes them as his workmanship in that first illustration. And the second one, they're Gentiles who are aliens, estranged from God, and and not having any place in the, the economy of Israel at all. They're without hope, they're without God. But now it says, in Christ, the two Jews and Gentiles have come together to form a new man. And so, this new man is called ultimately the church. All right, this is where we've been so far. This is what Paul has revealed so far. It's an incredible picture, and it's an incredible reminder to us that we were dead, but now we are his workmanship, all because of what God has done in Christ. That we were alienated without hope. But because of what Christ has done, we are now part of this new man called the church. If you are a child of God, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you can say that is true about you. You are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And you are part of this corporate reality called the church. And so now he jumps in and he's wanting to to talk now about this uh, get to this prayer, but he he takes this little segue, this little stutter, so to speak, and reminds his readers of the privilege of being god 's steward and so we have in verses one through thirteen um, uh, Paul basically revealing the significance of his god given stewardship of grace and Paul is going then to reveal that to us and i'm going i 'm going to use four words to help us kind of understand what he is saying. So four words will be what uh, we'll we'll work on or work with here together, just to kind of hang our thoughts, at least today. Okay. First of all, I want us to think about the word commitment. The word commitment. Commitment. Again, look, if you would, please, at verse 1. For this reason I, Paul. Now, it's interesting that he identifies his name. He's already identified his name, hasn't he? But once again, he's identifying his name here. And there's, there's a quick reminder that Paul is no longer this Saul of Tarsus, so to speak, this one that was going around persecuting the church. He is the one who has himself um, been removed from being this, in this place of, 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 uh, of death and moved to life because of what God has done. He is... Who once was the persecutor of the church, now because of this this encounter with God on the road to Damascus, he is now one of the uh, prisoners of Christ. And so the first thing I want you to notice here is that he is a prisoner of Christ. And that is a a, a label, you might want to say, that identifies all of us who know Christ as our Lord and Savior. We are prisoners of him. That's a good thing. Don't think of that in its negative connotation. We are safe and secure in Christ. And we have a new name. We have a new identity. And we are actually enslaved to him as our master. That's a good thing. Because you want to be enslaved to Christ. He is a master you can trust. He's a master that will only give you direction and counsel that will benefit you. So first, notice he's a prisoner of Christ. Now notice the language in here, though, is where I got this idea of prisoner. He's also a prisoner for Christ. Okay? Now notice what it says here in verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ. He has a perspective as a prisoner of Christ that what God has called him to, even though he's under house arrest, is for the glory of God. He has been put under house arrest because he has been proclaiming the gospel. So he's there because of his standing and his activity as a faithful apostle of Jesus Christ. And Paul recognizes that although I'm a prisoner in Rome, that he is in actuality a prisoner of Christ. He has perspective that is rooted in God's sovereign purpose that recognizes that he is securely in God's grip and therefore a prisoner for Christ. There's a reason why he's there. He's a prisoner for Christ. And it's an amazing picture. Think about this. Here is the man, once living in leadership and prestige, accusing the followers of Christ, persecuting the followers of Christ, who now, because of his encounter with Christ, is in a... Under house arrest, despised, ridiculed, forsaken, but fulfilling his calling for Christ. He's not trying to escape the situation. He recognizes that it's God's purpose to bring about God's glory. Again, look at verse 13 in our text. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. See, he has the perspective to recognize that what he's experiencing is all part of God's wonderful, glorious plan. Notice the third thing, though. He's not just a prisoner for Christ. He's also a prisoner for the Gentiles. Okay? He is a prisoner of Christ, for Christ, but now for the Gentiles. So verse 1 again, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. So all of this, ultimately, he sees God's hand at work in his, his imprisonment is ultimately for Christ in that it is the means by which he can be benefited or he can be, be used by God to benefit the Ephesian church. Now, I don't know that necessarily that Paul gets up one day and says, I want to impact the church. So how about I get arrested? Does that sound like a good plan? Because while I'm arrested, I can sit down and I can write these letters to encourage the churches. That's not necessarily how we would plan things, right? But in God's providence, in his sovereign control, He puts Paul in prison and from prison, Paul is able to write these letters, the prison epistles, and he's able to send those out to the churches to be an encouragement to those churches. Now let me ask you a question. Paul here is clearly committed to his new life in Christ and his new calling in Christ. How about you? Do you feel like you're a Prisoner at work. Do you feel like you're a prisoner at home, or a prisoner at school, boxed into your mundane life, stuck in this place? Now I know you know Paul is under house arrest, and so you kind of get this idea that you know everything was fine, and he was you know he was he was having meals made for him, and he was all happy and stuff. I I, I think it was probably. Um, a little bit more difficult than maybe we would imagine. God has placed you in your place of work for a reason. God has given you your family to be your family for a reason. He's called you to be a part of that family. And you young people who are in school right now, that's where God has called you to right now. Are you embracing that as part of God's purpose and providence for you that he is now working his will through? And there's a sense in which we can just kind of like, oh, I've got to go to work again, or I've got to go home to the family and deal with all this, or maybe I've got to go to school, or whatever it might be, and it's like, hey, listen, wait, 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 wait. This is all part of God's purpose and plan, and we need to shift our thinking to recognize where he has placed me is where I need to glorify him. And I just want to encourage you to think about that as we reflect on Paul here. Do you, ha- Do you need to have some change of perspective? Now, there is the word commitment. Just that first verse. But now we want to move to this next one. It's the, it's, it's the word revelation. What was revealed to Paul? That's the question we want to ask. And Even the songs today Johnny chose um, for the purpose of connecting it with this, this text are, are, are really, really helpful. Because uh, he, that first song, Jesus, Thank You, talks about the subject, the mystery. What does what, what Paul... What was revealed to Paul? We can say the mystery was revealed to Paul. Look at verse 2. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by what? Revelation. In other words, God revealed it directly to him, as I have written briefly. So this idea of mystery is is a term that Paul uses over 20 times in his letters, it's also used in some other, it's used in the Gospels and uh, I think in the book of Revelation total of another seven times. Now, if we were to open up a dictionary and we looked up the word mystery, the idea would be something that is simply unknown, it's a mystery, we don't know. The word mystery that's being used here, that flows out of the Greek language from the, the word mysterion, is something that is known only to those who are initiated, Let me explain what I'm saying here. It is not that the thing itself is unknown, but it is known, but only to those to whom it is revealed. So this is what happened with the, you might have heard of the the mystery religions. In the mystery religions, things like the, the, the following of Mithra and Isis and Dionysius and so on. People in general did not know what went on in the context of those mystery religions, you had to be a fully-fledged, involved member of those religions to have been given that mystery, to have that revealed to you. So when we think biblically now of what a mystery is, a mystery, and how Paul is using it, is this. It is something that was unknown before the coming of Christ, but is now fully revealed, okay? So it's, it's something that was unknown, I would say to mankind, before the coming of Christ, but is now fully known. Cert- certainly, there are were, there were, there were bits and pieces in the Old Testament, of a picture and, and painting, a, painting a, a picture of the Messiah and his coming. There are prophecies and promises and that kind of stuff, but it is Paul to whom this this package of revelation to tie it all together has been revealed. That's the idea here, okay? And that has been given not only to Paul, but also to the apostles and the prophets of the New Testament. Okay? So think now about the timing of the mystery. Verse four. When you read this, when you read this, um, you can perceive, my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, it, is, it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Last time we were together, we just talked about how that was referring to New Testament apostles and prophets, not Old Testament, pop, uh, ap- oh, not Old Testament prophets. So let's think about these two different groups. The mystery of Christ was not made known in Old Testament times, but the mystery of Christ was made known to the apostles and prophets, Paul being one of them, okay? The 12 plus Paul making up those apostles, all right? So the question now is, what is the mystery? And he's going to tell us what this mystery is. This mystery is that the Gentiles, verse 6, are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise of Christ, Jesus, through the gospel. And so friends, this is the shock news of Paul's letter. Again, we're we're covering some same territory, but just to make sure we all understand. The shock news that Paul is revealing to the church is that Jews and Gentiles are together um, formed into one body. Jews are not superior to Gentiles. Gentiles actually come in and have full rights just like anyone else. That is a shock to the system. Now, we we, we may have some, you know, that's settled already. But in that context, that was like, wow. Okay? Because there were struggles there in the early church between the Judaizers and stuff. Okay? So... Paul has been laying this out already in his epistle, and he's just reminding them this is what the mystery is. Now, there is a little, there's a little Greek technique that you don't see um, in the English language, and I, I, I want you at least to see what's going on here. Three, he says three things um, are together. He says they're heirs together with Israel, they're members together in one body, they're partakers together. And the emphasis there is on the word Together. So the Jews and Gentiles have come together, not to be a church that is made up now of Jews and Gentiles, but they are Jews and Gentiles that have come together to make the church. And in that church, there is no distinction as far as citizenship is concerned. You might ethnically be a Jew or a Gentile, but in the church, that division doesn't matter unless you're at a potluck. Okay? For example... Uh, one of the things that that we might conclude here is that because of this new formation of the church, a Jewish father can give his blessing for his daughter to marry a Gentile young man. Culturally, that would be offensive. But now, in Christ, because we have a new citizenship, we have a new family, there is no Jew, there is no Gentile that divides us. We are one in Christ. We are together together. And friends, that's really, really important. And this is really, really important when when we talk about things like, you know, race in our culture, and we talk about, you know, um, the role of men and women in our culture, we talk about blue collar, white collar, we talk about, you know, those that are wealthy, those that are in poverty, you know, those who are educated, those who are not educated, it doesn't matter. We step through the threshold of the cross into the church, we are all part of that same body. You know, when we go to Bolivia, one of the things that we have noticed when we went there is when we go and do ministry in the mountains, most of the men that come do not have much of an education. I'm not saying they're not smart, but they don't have much of a formal education. When we go to the city, they have a much greater education base. But all of them have a passion to minister the word of God. And that's why what we're doing is trying to teach all of them together and be effective in doing that so that the word of God can continue to be disseminated in the churches, whether they're churches that meet in villages where people simply are farmers and working the land, or whether it's in the city where you might have some professionals that are attending, different context. But it's all part of the body of Christ, and we've got to be careful we're not internally looking down on one another or, or, or being in our own little separate groups because you know we're we're of one identity, or we're 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 kind of you know we're the you know the 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 group that maybe has a little bit more money or uh, likes to do other things together. We we've got to be careful, friends, that as we as we flow out of this text, as we think about what's going on here, that we are we are recognizing how the this this picture is a picture for us to see unity in the body of Christ. Now notice what it says here just at the, at the end of the section. Of this gospel, verse 7, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which is given me by the working of his power. Now Paul emphasizes something um, that is important to both apostles as well as those who are not apostles, who are simply members of the church, and that would be us. Hear this. In whatever service we engage... We all live out of the same grace. The same resources to which we point others. So Paul was simply saying this. This is what I've been called by God to do, but whatever you're called by God to do, you're going to be able to do that out of the same resources that I'm able to do what I'm doing. I, as pastor-teacher here at Gateway, am simply exercising my gift out of the same resources that are available to the body of Christ. And so when you exercise your gifts, then you are reaching back into those same resources. Let me, let me paint a picture here then from Paul and then for us. First of all, for Paul, it, his goal was to edify the, the saints through the preaching of the word. And that's why he planted churches, that's why he went and he, he equipped uh, men in those churches to take on responsibilities of, of, of eldership and leadership. Um, He counseled the churches about how to grow in Christ. He warned them about false teachers and false teaching. But for us, it is to exercise the spiritual gifts and talents that God, by his grace, has revealed to you. For example, the gift of helps, the gift of discernment, the gift of giving, or the gift of encouragement, or the gift of knowledge, or administration, or pastor, or teacher. The point is, whatever gifts, spiritual gifts that God has given you, You go to the same well to exercise those spiritual gifts as Paul does or any other believer does. The same same resource, the same power, um, the the same um, source of strength um, is also um, available to the rest of the body of Christ. Let me put it this way a little bit. Paul's Paul is modeling here his dependence on God's power in the exercise of his gifts. Now, just a little segue for us. Every believer has at least one spiritual gift and probably have more than one spiritual gift. How you exercise that gift, though, is not by virtue of your own power. You exercise that gift by saying, God, I don't have the strength and the power to do this. I need your grace, your strength to empower me to do that. It needs to be grace-driven. It needs to be some uh, fuel that comes from God. And Paul is modeling that for us here. So what God has revealed to us um, is a rich resources, resource and the power behind the exercise of the gifts. But God's revelation was never meant to be the end game. In other words, simply you having a gift, you having this revelation, Paul having this truth, Paul being taken aside and having these realities presented to him and demonstrated to him, that is not the end game. He was given that revelation for a purpose, okay? And that purpose we'll call commission, commission. So Paul is committed to being a prisoner of Christ, being a prisoner for Christ, and being a prisoner for the Gentiles. He has received this revelation to be a steward of the mysteries of God, and that is the, the mystery that the Gentiles and the Jews are coming together to be this one man. Okay. And he is now also given this commission, this, this, this good news, this mystery of the gospel must be made known. Look at verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Now, Paul here is being humble. This is not false humility. This is truly what he believes about himself. He's amazed that he is now God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. He's amazed that he is part of God's one man, the church. And Paul understood that giftedness for ministry didn't raise him above those to whom he was ministering. And so the, the, the Greek language literally says this where it says, though I am the very least of all the saints, this is literally how it would play out. I am the lesser of the least of all the saints. Now, in theory, that's impossible. You can't be the lesser of the least, okay? Um, And of course, he's using that as a figure of speech to express that he considers himself to be at the bottom of the pile, so to speak. Now, this is, a, this is a, a, a contrast that he's giving. I am at the bottom of the pile, and yet I've been given this grace to minister the gospel, to steward the mysteries of Christ. So there's the, the flow that's going on through the, the Ephesians 1 through 3. As we grow in Christ, we see our condition before Christ with greater clarity. Just think about that. As you go through the book of Ephesians, this is what God did for you, right? You're called, you're you're, um, predestined, you're redeemed, you're forgiven, you have an inheritance. I'm praying that the eyes of your heart will be opened. And then I show you your depravity. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. You're alienated from God. And as we grow in our understanding of the gospel, what happens is we begin to see our sin clearer Um, in a way that um, makes sense to us that maybe before we didn't quite comprehend. We knew that we were sinners, but now we see our sin in a clearer way. And so as we grow in Christ, we see our condition before Christ with greater clarity. This is the new humanity that God has called us to. It's called the church. And so a mark of maturity is to not be afraid of seeing sin And repenting of it. Now friends, see, if you're at a place where you're afraid for God to reveal sin in your life, that's not a good place to be. A maturing place is where you're saying, God, I'm learning more about you. I'm learning more about myself. I'm learning more about your grace applied. And so when I see my sinfulness Lord, I want you to show it to me, and I'm going to trust you because I know that I can come boldly to the throne of grace because of what you've done. So, a, a a growing, maturing Christian is going to grow in their understanding and the clarity of their sinfulness, and they're going to come to God more readily and repent of their sins. Okay, now we're not walking around, you know, keeping keeping logs on how, you know, how much you repent to determine your maturity level. I'm just saying that these these are things that you need to be considering. Am I I willing to go before God and say, God, forgive me of my sin. I repent of that sin. And maybe we're afraid to do that. So the, the revelation God gives Paul is both the means and the message Paul is to proclaim to both the Jews and the Gentiles. Let me say it this way. He came to preach the gospel by the power of the gospel. So it's the means and it is the message. Okay, Now, specifically, What is he commissioned to do? There's two things. He comes to preach. He comes to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, let's think first of all about this method of preaching. Um, How does the world view preaching? What does Scripture say? What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians? It considers it foolishness. Now, here's Paul, a persecutor of the church, converted now, who once used violence to put people down, to stop growth, who now goes about recognizing that there is power in the proclaimed word of God. Totally new. Totally fresh. Totally misunderstood. Totally um, ridiculed by the world. Now the word... Preach is the word euangelizo, which literally means to proclaim the good news. It's the kind of word that used to describe someone coming and announcing the birth of a child of a king, or announcing a great victory. They're coming bearing good news. And so Paul is saying, this is what I am doing. I am preaching. I'm coming bearing good news to the Gentiles. Now hear this. Preaching is something that I or any pastor is called to do. So, preaching is not about Rod getting his message across. Preaching is about Rod getting God's message of good news across. And so as, as we're going through this passage, what's the, what's the goal of our, of our time here today? What is it that I'm trying to do? Well, First of all, I'm trying to fix my notes here. That's what I'm trying to do. Um, what is it that I'm that I'm trying to do here is I'm not trying to give you my thoughts. I'm trying to help you see what God says about, about his thoughts. Excuse me a second here. I've got technical difficulties going on and I don't know how to resolve them. Here we go. All right, here we go, I think. Okay. So it's often, it's often expressed this way. God, think of, think of a restaurant. God is the chef in the restaurant. And God, as the chef in the restaurant, is preparing a meal. And that meal needs to get to the person that's sitting at the table in the restaurant. Okay? Got that so far? God then, in the kitchen, prepares the gospel. That gospel then goes from the kitchen and it needs to get out to the table. And he has called some people to be pastor-teachers, to proclaim that gospel, and to proclaim his word, you might even say. So now, as that servant, as that person who's waiting the tables, I take that gospel, I take that word of God, and my job is to get that plate that's been set by God to the person sitting at the table without messing it up. Now, what happens oftentimes in preaching is this. Well, God says, here's what I want man to hear. And then the, 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 the waiter says, oh, they're, they're never going to hear that. How about, I, how about I maybe cut it up a little smaller chunks? Maybe they'll be able to eat that. Or maybe I'll put some sweet garnish on there or something like that. Maybe that'll help take them and stuff like that. No. It's not the job of the server to adjust the meal that's been prepared by the chef. And so what Paul is, is identifying here is that he is preaching the good news. It's not Paul's good news. It's God's good news that Paul has been, get, been given this stewardship of. Stewardship, again, is managing what the master has given that steward to manage, right? So he's stewarding these gospel truths. So this is this preaching idea. There's a lot more to say about that. But preaching is the means by which God wants to proclaim his good news... And the content of that preaching here are the unsearchable or incomprehensible riches of Christ. And these include all of his truths, all the things that that scripture reveals about who he is and what he has done. This is the purpose of every preacher, to declare the riches of Christ, to tell every believer how rich they are in Christ their rich and privileged position in Christ. And friends, hear this. If you are a child of God, it's not just that you have a ticket to heaven. If you're a child of God, you are part of this new man, the church. And you have responsibilities as that new man, as well as blessings being that new man. These are the unsearchable riches in Christ, and you're going to have a lifetime to mind those things. And you're going to have a lifetime to hear those things mined for you and proclaimed and declared to you in the context of a Sunday morning or some kind of a class that you would have, and even as you open up the word of God for yourself. Now, friends, also, this is critically important for us as we think about what lies ahead in the book of Ephesians. We need to understand the, the rich, privileged position that we have in Christ so that we can then understand how he is calling us to live out the practical realities that he's going to reveal for us in chapter 4 and onward. So we need to know how rich we are in Christ in order for us to live obedient, productive lives that are for his glory. Just think about maybe summarizing this, this idea of the riches that we have in Christ through two passages of scripture. You can just listen, Colossians 2, 3, in whom, talking about Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You're not going to find a library big enough that compares to the knowledge that you're going to have in Christ. I mean, he is the source of wisdom. He is the dispenser of wisdom. He is the one to whom we can go. And we will never exhaust the beauty and the knowledge of his wisdom. Then there's 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. He's given us all things. So he's given us these resources, this wisdom, these unsearchable riches, and Paul is proclaiming that. Now we we continue on in in our passage, and not only does he preach to the Gentiles, but he also brings to light for everyone So we got something specifically directed at the Gentiles, but we also have something now specifically directed at everyone else, right? Including the Gentiles. Verse 9 again. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Let me ask you a question. Was the message of of the mystery um, simply a message to the Gentiles so that they would know? that when they stepped through the threshold of the cross that they were brought into a new man? Or was it also a mystery that was made known to the church that included people that were formerly Jews so that they could have clarity and understanding that all these people are now just like them in Christ, right? He's directing it at the Gentiles, but he's also understanding that those who are not Gentiles are listening to this. And they're learning, and they're growing, and they're beginning to think, aha, I, may have, I need to set some things aside that I thought I needed to bring into this Christianity that has uh, laces of Judaism on it. Now, This idea of bringing to light means to illuminate, to shed light upon. And I like what Sinclair Ferguson has to say about it, so I, I thought I would just read what he says. As a steward of the gospel, Paul was always going to be, or going to the cup, bird's, Right? This, is, this is from his, his book here. The cupboard stocked with its truth and bringing out into the light the provisions of his master. Yes, it is good when biblical exposition is full of heat. You know what that means? Rawr, right? you know, pushing and proclaiming and, and exhorting. All right, That's good. But God's son never gives out heat without at the same time giving light. It's really important. These, then, are the hallmarks and watchwords of true preaching in the Pauline tradition. Light, illumination, clarification, manifestation, understanding. They should be the hallmarks of all preaching. So one of the questions you should be asking, or you should ask yourself a lot of questions as I'm up here preaching, is there clarifying that's taking place? Is there illumination that's taking place? All right? Is there light being shed? There may be heat also, but am I coming and learning and growing because the word of God is, is being brought to a place where I'm understanding how it connects together and what the flow of the argument is? If we don't get the flow of the argument, if we don't get the flow of the text, we miss the point of what's going on. So friends, this is what is taking place here. So once what was once hidden has now been revealed to Paul who was commissioned to proclaim the good news of the mystery of God's grace in such a way as to bring light, understanding, illumination, clarification to both Jew and Gentile. Now, all of that leads us to the so that in verse 10. Okay, the so that, this is what's called a hinna clause and when you see a so that, you understand this is kind of where the text is driving, this is the purpose, this is the goal And uh, there are three things I think are helpful here as we consider what this goal looks like. So, four implications, sorry, three implications um, that I'm seeing flowing out of this text based on his stewardship. Here's what he is desiring to do through the stewardship. Number one, the first implication is that Satan and the angels will see God's wisdom. Let's read verse 10. So that through the church, through who? The church. Who's the church? All right, he was speaking to the church in Ephesus, but through the centuries, we are also the church. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. So the church is able to do something. The church is the vehicle through which the manifold wisdom of God. The the manifold is another word that can be described as many-colored. It it was a word that was used to describe a a, a flower that has many different color petals. And, And that just fits perfectly with what he's trying to say. We have these Gentiles that are made up of all sorts of different colors, right? And you have the Jews all coming together through the cross making one new man, the church. And that church is this Incredible, multicultural, um, uh, multi-ethnic uh, with all the different divisions and, and, and kind of different groups coming together as one group, as one man, Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, all coming into this one body. And this church now is making known the wisdom of God. Just think about that. You and I, being the church, are proclaiming, are declaring, are allowing, as it says here, the rulers and authorities in heavenly places to see the wisdom of God. Now, the wisdom of God, first and foremost, would be the fact that how can you bring... All these people together as one. You get a bunch of people from all different places around the world that speak different languages, that have different passions and different ideologies. You gather them into a a room and say, let's all unite together as one. Have fun. But in Christ, that's what God has done. Now, the rulers and authorities in heavenly places are First of all, looking on. And we can think of those as being Satan, um, who's seeking to destroy God's plan. But he's being reminded by the church through the, the many colored wisdom of God that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. He wants to destroy God, he wants to undo the gospel. And he's doing what he can, even though. He knows what God says. He doesn't want to believe it. and He wants to try and thwart it. But the church is proof to him and his minions that God is wise and his gospel is glorious. So it's not just, though, to Satan and his minions. I think there's also an aspect here. If it's not talking about that here in Ephesians, it certainly is talking about in other places that this is also declaring the wisdom of God to the holy angels, because the holy angels are not omniscient. That means they don't know everything. They're created beings that are limited in their capacity. All they know is what is revealed to them. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12 says this. It was revealed to them, talking about the prophets, that they were serving not themselves but you, talking about the church, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven get this, things into which angels long to look. It's just an amazing picture, friends, that as God is, is accomplishing his purposes, as he's revealing his plan, as, he is, as he's created the church and as he's working through the church, the angels are looking on and they're amazed and they're in awe that their creator, the one that they serve, is unfolding this incredible plan. I just think about that thought when you think about the angels at the birth of Christ. I think oftentimes we think, okay, they're in on this, they know what's going on, but when the angels come and they're coming to the shepherds and they're singing, they're just hearing about, and they're just watching, and they're just seeing the plan of God unfold. God has come in the flesh. We've got something to sing about. Okay? They're limited, and they long to see God's redemptive plan unfold, God's wisdom on display. And friends, we as the church have the great privilege To make God's wisdom known to those rulers and authorities, to Satan and to those angels. Now, I can't measure that. (laughs) But because God's word says it, guess what? It must be true. So as we function together as a church for the glory of God, God's wisdom is on display. That's a powerful thought, isn't it? And that causes us to stop and to say, you know what? We want to get this right. And we want to do this well. And we want to do this for the glory of God. And in doing it, we want others to be drawn in their attention to give Him praise. That's the first implication. The second implication is this the saints or sinners will have boldness. This. He says in verse 11, this wisdom of God in creating the church, this was according to the eternal purposes that he has realized in Christ, uh, Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. All right, boldness and access with confidence. Those are wonderful words. And those are wonderful words, especially in a Jewish context, where one had to go through a priest, and one had to go through a sacrifice, but now the sacrifice has been made. There is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Jesus has accomplished that sacrifice once for all. It is finished, is what he said. It's done. And when he died, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, which means now that there is no, there's no kind of division, wall between the temple and the Holy of Holies. In the Jewish economy, once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies to offer incense to God on behalf of the nation of Israel. For anyone else to enter that area, it was instant death. But now, because of our faith in Christ, We no longer have to go through a priest to get to God. Friends, this is what we call the priesthood of the believer. We can come boldly to the throne of grace. This is a a fundamental, foundational, Protestant truth. That we come to God boldly. And it's all because we're coming to him through Christ who was already paid Penalty on the cross. Now, in Christ, if you remember, the wall that separated us from God has been torn down, and that's the foundation that we have to come boldly to that throne of grace. Look at verse uh, Hebrews chapter four. Just listen as I read Hebrews four fifteen and following. If we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, the high priest are talking about Jesus but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help or to help in time of need. Just language that takes us right there into that throne room and we can walk boldly into it. Not casually, not complacently, but boldly with confidence based on what Christ has done for us and by faith. The third thing then is this. The third implication is that suffering for the gospel will make sense. Verse 13, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Now friends, the reality is that in our world, um, there is going to be trouble, trouble, there's going to be suffering. There's going to be persecution simply because we're followers of Christ. As probably many of you have heard, in the city of New York, we could not do what we're doing here in the city of New York. They have, they have made a decision in the courts that religious institutions cannot rent facilities from public schools. Okay? Now, it might have a mask of kind of like, well, we don't want anyone to do it, but there's so much... Um, challenge to what churches are doing today that there is this rising in my opinion persecution that is focused in this opposition to the gospel that is taking place in our country today and don't be surprised if it's coming our way soon in some way shape or form now the, the bottom line here is this Paul says so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you which is your glory if, if you're being persecuted, if you're suffering because you are standing for the gospel in a Christ-like way, it is for the glory of God. It is for the glory of the church. We shouldn't, we shouldn't run away from that. It makes sense. We shouldn't be discouraged at what appear to be difficult setbacks like imprison, imprisonment or, or suffering. John 16:33 says this, "I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Put in there: persecution, suffering. but take heart, I have overcome the world." Now, I want to conclude with two thoughts. There's a lot about what Paul is saying here that is real repetition of what he's already said, right? I mean, he's going back to the same places and pulling it out again, pulling it out. be saying, listen, this is the stewardship that I have been given, but I've, I've been given because I want you as believers, as followers of Christ to understand really two critically important truths. And that's what I want to summarize here as we conclude. The first one is this. Our identity, and our identity is that we are in Christ. And that expression, in Christ, encompasses all this process of, of redemption that we find in chapter 1... This, this enlightening of our eyes that takes place in chapter 1 also so that we can see and we can grasp this gospel and all the realities of, of the benefits of moving from, from death to life and being as workmanship, from being alienated to being this, this church, all of that is our position in Christ. And friends, if you are a child of God, your position does not change, will not change, has not changed. Even if you fall flat on your face in sin, you can be secure that as a child of God, you, 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 you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And he said that a number of times. So all of us right now, if we're God's children, positionally, spiritually speaking, have this wonderful reality that we are seated with him. He wants us to be secure about our position in him and the great responsibility and the great privilege that we have in that position. It should produce confidence for us to to move on and and to, to, to live for his glory on this earth. But he also wants us to know our mission. As he has been working through this whole, this whole letter, he's he laying the foundation to finally get to the place of the church. And his mission is fleshed out through this organism called the church. Through this one man called the church. A lot of people say that the book of Ephesians is about the church. Well, eventually he's gotten there. But he's had to lay a foundation. So our identity is in Christ, but not only that, we have a mission being the church. And what we've seen already is this. The church's mission is to praise God for his glorious grace. The church's mission is to manifest the wisdom of God to those who are watching. The church's mission is to be the people of God he has called us to be. And that will be reaching forward into chapters 4 through 6. The mission of the church will be to come before God with boldness and confidence. And that should be an active reality for all who are part of his church. The mission of the church is to be faithful stewards of what God has revealed to us and blessed us with. The question is, do we understand our position in Christ in such a way that we're not going to get knocked over and drawn away and deceived by false teaching? And do we understand the mission of the church that God has called all of us to to be a part of? Not talking here about universal church. that's kind of nebulous and wandering all over the place. Talking here about a local church. He's writing to a local church. And churches that are in a particular local location that flesh out their their lives with each other. And that's very clear because of the practical stuff that's talked about in the rest of of, of the book of Ephesians. He's called us to, to be on mission as the church for his glory. Now, there's going to be more about that. He hasn't revealed all the details of that. But that is certainly what he is drawing our attention to. So this morning, as we conclude, I just want us to, to settle on those things. What is... Do, do, do you have a grasp of your identity in Christ? Do you, are, you, are you growing in that? Is, that? is that something where you're beginning to see how you fit in individually? But then also, do you see how God has called you to be part of the mission of the church and how we together are united for his glory? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you today. This, is, this has been a little bit more of a difficult passage for us to wrestle with. Yet at the same time, Lord, it's important for us to see that, that Paul even sees himself as one who was walking in darkness, but now has been brought into light. That he is one that was dead, but now has been made alive. But not just made alive, but made alive with a purpose. And made alive to do something. And in Paul's case, made alive to be a steward of the mysteries of grace. And you've called us to be alive and to be alive as your church with a purpose. Not simply just to huddle together, but to be a church that is declaring the glorious gospel. That is revealing your wisdom in how we live and how we interact and the choices we make and the the, the behavior that we we experience as we live our lives together. So Lord, help us to be serious about that. Help us to pursue what it means to be a church with great prayer and carefulness and to do it, Lord, for your glory. And Lord, I just pray as we, as we think about the, the weeks to come as we jump into some of the later chapters, Lord, that you would just begin to, to, to formulate this foundation for us so that when we arrive there, your practical instructions and commands, Lord, would not simply be means by which we're trying to somehow impress you, but they would be outgrowths of our identity and our mission because you've called us to be the church. So Lord, we ask that you would continue to strengthen us, continue to grow us, and Lord, to do that, Lord, in such a way that we will be enlightened, that we will have clarity We'll have insight that comes from your word by your Holy Spirit, Lord. We ask this in your name. Amen.